Thank you, Pastor, for that prayer. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 15. It's been good to worship together. Thank Pastor Chad and Megan for leading us in music. I appreciated uh, the prayer confession. Pastor Mark, thank you for the introduction. That was very Martin Luther-like. I think if you'd have done it in German, I would have just thought it was Martin Luther there. Um, I mean, he's been dead for 500 years, so there's that, there's that small thing. But besides that, that would have felt like uh, it's Martin Luther. So, we, uh, God willing, we'll be finishing up the book of Mark this morning. So we're going to start where Pastor Chad left off last week. We're going to pick up with Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Before we dive in, let me open us... Um, by asking for help from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we return again before You, asking for help. Lord, I thank You that we can gather peacefully. We can gather in not just relative comfort, but real comfort. We can gather around Your Word. And Lord, every one of these things have cost many people their lives that this is even possible. But Lord, as many folks as this has cost their lives, it is only because of Your grace that any of this is true. That we have in our hands the very words of God is unbelievable grace. Thank You, Father. Thank You for every man who gave his life, copying letter after letter and handing it down so that we have it. Thank you for the men who are burned at the stake because they believe the Word of God should be out. Thank you for the men who are martyred because they believe the preaching of the Word is how the church grows. So Father, we come thankful that we can gather around Your Word. And now, Lord, would You help us to cherish it in our hearing of it this morning? I pray as a preacher You would help me to cherish it as I preach it, as the treasure that it is. But I pray also for my brothers and sisters that they would hear and treasure as they hear that this is the Word of God. Thank You, Father, for this. Lord, we pray that You would give us help. We pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be treasured among us. Thank You, Father, that You have been relentless in overcoming our unbelief so that we may believe in the risen Savior, so that we may believe the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. And so, Father, I pray that would go out. I pray we would be encouraged in it. I pray we would believe deeper and stronger from it. We ask, we realize that all of this can only be accomplished if You do it. So we ask it to You, Father. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our brother, our Lord. We pray now that You would accomplish this by Your Spirit, O God. Amen. Well, um, let's start here in Mark 15, verse 40. Uh, so here we are. There were, remember, Mark 15, 39 takes us all the way up to the, the point of Jesus dying 
on the cross. Mark 15, verse 40. This is Peter's account recorded by Mark. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Alright, four quick observations in this part. First, you're going to see already from the beginning that the women take a very, very major role here. As members of a Western society, on the other side of feminism, it's hard for us to understand what a big deal this is. But in the first century culture, it's just the fact women were simply not considered reliable witnesses to an event that God would use as the major witnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ Women demonstrates the sovereign power of God that He will get His gospel out however He sees fit apart from human strength. Observation one, women took a major role. Second, that women are mentioned here and not the apostles is a rebuke on the apostles. One of the strongest arguments concerning the authenticity of the New Testament is the fact that the apostles, even though they had the primary role in seeing the gospel accounts of Jesus recorded, they are so transparent about their own weaknesses and failures. One of the things you're going to see in the text this morning before us is how brutally honest the apostles are about their disbelief, about their willingness to abandon Jesus in the hours of His deepest need. The apostles were not there. The women were. Third, we are given specific names. Why does that matter? This is historical narrative. That is, the Gospel accounts, every one of them from the very beginning, realized they were recording something that actually took place. This was an historical account. It's the same reason that when we find out about Simon who carried the Simon of Cyrene, not only are we told he's Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross earlier in Mark 15, but he goes on and says, you know, it's uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus. In other words, these are real people. So this is historical fact, historical accuracy. And last, there's a very interesting, I think intentional connection to the Garden of Eden. Whereby in Genesis 3, we see Eve, a woman, the first to taste the sting of sin and death, is the first member of the human race to fall into sin. Now, in this final concluding moment, we see the women standing and gazing at the cost of sin as they take in the sight of the broken, bloodied Lamb of God in a very different garden. Verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, 
a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Verse 45, And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. All right, four observations again, and all show one major thing. That is the full control of God even when the body of Jesus is without pulse or without heartbeat. First, notice the fact that Jesus is dead so quickly. Most people during crucifixion actually live on the cross for days unless manipulated by the executioners in order to hasten death. Jesus died without being sped along at all by the executioners. Jesus died when He said, it is finished. And in John's words, He breathed His last full control of God even in the death of Jesus. This point is underscored in this text because of the amount of work Peter and Mark do to show us Pilate's surprise that Jesus is already dead. He actually summons a soldier to say, is he really already dead? Yeah, he's already dead. Well, then go ahead and get him off the cross, which was important to have him off the cross before the Sabbath. Second, listen to how Isaiah, he's writing six hundred years before Jesus is ever born. I want you to see how he describes the burial of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 9. I think we have this for you. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, if you're tracking through Isaiah and reading there, there's got to be a point at which you stop and go, how is that even possible? How is it that someone is supposed to have been buried both as the wicked and buried like a rich man? Those are mutually exclusive burials. And yet notice... That God does exactly as He described He would well over 600 years prior. The bodies of those crucified were pulled off of the cross and thrown into a pile of corpses. It was a nasty scene. It was a nasty place called Gehenna on the outskirts of the city. A horrible pit. Often, It's actually the place we get our word for hell from from this Gehenna pit. The crucified were not allowed a burial. This was the fate that would have been the fate of the body of Jesus. He was headed towards Gehenna. His grave had been made with the wicked. But then God raises up a rich follower, Joseph, 
And Joseph courageously goes to Pilate and pleads for the body. And one may argue, which is the greater act of God here? That God was able to grant Joseph enough courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body? Or that God was able to grant Pilate a a willingness to give the body over to Joseph? Both demonstrate the work of God even in the burial of Jesus. God orchestrates that though His grave was made with the wicked, He would be buried with the rich. Third, notice who's not watching. Again, the apostles. They're not mentioned. They're intentionally not mentioned because they are absent. No, in this hour of need, God would not rely on the ones who had followed Jesus step by step. Instead, God would raise up Joseph of Arimathea as if God is saying once again, I will make the rocks cry out. I will call who it is I want to call when I need them. Fourth, notice who is watching again. Who's there? Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus saw where He was laid. Again, the women. God is using the women to be the witnesses to the most significant moment in human history. Okay, now we turn to chapter 16 and we need to deal with one major issue before we get going. And that is, where does this chapter end? (laughs) Where does this chapter end? Let me explain. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you will likely not see anything different as you go from verse 8 to verse 9. It just looks the normal. Just go ahead and look down at your Bible there at verse 8 and verse 9. You might want to look at what translation you have too because I'm going to tell you what it should look like. You can say, no, you're wrong. Um, so if you have a King James or New King James, you should see no difference there between 8 and 9. If you have the Holman Christian Standard, the American Standard Version, the uh, New American Standard Version, or the RSV, then what you will likely see is between verse 8 and 9, at least a single bracket that begins in verse 9 and goes all the way to verse 20. Okay? If you have the um, ESV, you will see the bracket, and then you'll see a note, something on the lines of the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. If you have an NIV, you will see a bracket, and then you will also see something on the lines of the uh, earliest manuscripts uh, do not contain verses 9 through 20. They don't say some, they say the earliest manuscripts. A tad bit misleading, actually, very misleading because it's wrong. But anyway, that is what you will see in your various versions there. So what is going on? Why these brackets? Why these notes? Why some have it? Why some don't? I'm so glad you asked. Um, Let me give you a very brief overview. And I mean very brief. People spend their entire lives. It would be a miserable existence. But still, this is what some people spend their entire lives on. Remember, the entire New Testament was, trans- was written in Greek and translated to other common languages. So the entire New Testament is written in Greek. 
As the sheets of papyri were passed around, the Greek was copied from over and over. We didn't have copy machines and printing presses, so it was meticulously copied over and over. This was done by scribes. There are stories of scribes realizing they're writing the words of God, writing a letter or a word, and going and taking a bath, and coming back to write another letter or a word because they wanted to be so alert for every single thing they wrote down because they realized it was the word of God. That really is tough when you realize that was before modern lotion. So I guess they just had very dry skin. But anyway, all right. So amazingly, we have over 25,000 New Testament manuscripts in Greek and a few other languages. This is unheralded in ancient literature. There's really nothing like it. When I say nothing like it, nothing comes close. Let me give you the, the, the second place finisher. It's Homer's Iliad. The earliest manuscripts of the New Testament date all the way back to the second century. The earliest manuscript of Homer's Iliad that we have is the, 13, is the 1300s, the 13th century. While we have 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament, there are less than 650 of Homer's Iliad. Nothing comes close. The amazing thing is, as you look at these different manuscripts, they are so close to one another. There's almost no differences as you compare manuscript to manuscript. And one of the few differences is found at the end of Mark. Some of the manuscripts have all the way to verse 20. Some of the manuscripts end at verse 8. And so as a preacher, when you're preaching through the book of Mark and you come to chapter 16, you have a decision to make. Do I preach all the way through verse 20 or do I end at verse 8? And there are folks who I deeply respect who land on different sides of this. Two of my favorite preachers, Mark Dever and John MacArthur, when they preached through Mark, they ended at verse 8. Two of my other very favorite preachers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, when they preached through the book of Mark, they ended at verse 20. So I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks reading hundreds of pages on this issue to try to make a good decision. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I like to read. That's not that big of a deal. I enjoy reading. But this was reading New Testament textual criticism. That's close to torture. Um, maybe at least uh, an enhanced interrogation technique. Um, in fact, it might be an interesting question. If, a, if you took a, an enemy combatant and forced them to read New Testament textual criticism, would that be considered against the Geneva Conventions? I'm not real sure. Um, it's a horrible, horrible read. I can't imagine a person who wakes up and says, I want to be a New Testament textual critic. That's, I like, I'm one of those guys that looks at most jobs and thinks, that would be a fun job for a day. I can't imagine a New Testament textual critic. Anyway, I spent my world in their world for the last little while. Well... I landed where I started on the issue, and that is that I think you should go all the way through verse 20. Um, I realize that some of you have studied this issue so that you probably want a brief summary. Others of you are at the moment where you're beginning to count sheep. So, 
Um, I will give you a 45-second summation of why I think we should go all the way to verse 20. And I will trust that if you're very interested in this, uh, that you will come and discuss later. Here we go. So while I recognize that the the two major manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, do not contain these verses, most of the early manuscripts, most of the early manuscripts do contain them. While the 4th century fathers, such as Eusebius and Jerome, do show doubts as to the longer ending, Jerome does include it in his translation, the Latin translation, the Vulgate. Furthermore, the 2nd century Fathers such as Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, they show that they know of the longer ending and are comfortable with it because they quote it. So I think that tilts the external evidence in favor of the longer ending. Lastly, while the Greek does look different between the longer ending and other parts of Mark, it is not so different that you should doubt as to whether it's original. While there are some different things in the verses, every single verse in the longer ending has a comparable verse in the other Gospels. So I think the internal evidence is a toss-up at worst. I think the external evidence leans towards it, and therefore I think there's a longer ending. So now, can I ask you, let's look at Mark 16, verses 1 through 20. If you don't mind waking your neighbor up, I would appreciate it. All right. So, uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. I think there is one major point. I didn't see this until late in the process. This is the major point. Disciples of Christ are forever changed by belief in the resurrected Jesus. Disciples of Christ are forever changed by belief in the resurrected Jesus. Look with me at verse 1 of Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Notice again, who are the main characters? The women. There's no mention of the apostles whatsoever. They're absent. Also, notice, this is so key in understanding how we think about the resurrection. The apostles, not only the apostles, but not even the women. Nobody, nobody is even considering the idea that Jesus has been raised. No one. The women were not on their way to see if He had had risen from the tomb. That's not their purpose. He's very explicit to explain that. They were on their way to anoint a dead man's body. They did not believe. So the apostles are hiding and the women are heading to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Verse 4. And looking up, this is 16 verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want you to see the incredible kindness of God in securing belief among His people. It's all through this passage. Three observations. First, God is merciful to roll the stone away. Folks, the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could come out. He doesn't need the stone to be rolled away to come out. He walks through walls. Remember John 20? He doesn't need a stone to get out. The stone was rolled away so that the followers of Jesus could come in. From the outset, God is being kind to birth in us belief. He is working to overcome our unbelief. Second, notice how tender the angel is. I love this. He says to the women, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. You know, it's funny. Man, especially modern man, loves to talk so bold about God. Says the most ridiculous things. Calls Him the man upstairs. Well, let me explain something. When we are even in the presence of one who has been in the presence of God, the person who's been in the presence of God has to tell us, calm down, you can breathe now. That's exactly what went on here. They weren't even in the presence of God. They were in the presence of an angel and He had to say what to them? Calm down. You're going to be okay. God is so kind. If you ever encounter God, do you realize the tenderness He has shown to let you continue to breathe and to continue to experience His presence? Third, notice how Jesus treats His followers who abandon Him. He sends word that He is coming for them. Now bear in mind, this is Peter's account in Rome. Mark's writing it down. Peter's telling it. You know Peter didn't miss that small point. When the angel said, you go and tell the disciples and who? Peter. Just days earlier, Peter, like a coward, had denied his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus says, I am coming to overcome your unbelief, all of your unbelief, and I'm coming for Peter. 
followers of Jesus are not kept by their obedience. Followers of Jesus are not kept by their obedience. They are kept by the relentless grace of Jesus. Friend, you cannot outrun this Savior. He will hunt you down. He will hold you fast. He will never let go of His own. He is relentless. He shows us the empty tomb. He calms us down to see and understand. And He comes after us to conquer our unbelief. Verse 9. Now, when He rose early on the first day of week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom He had cast out seven demons. Again, there is a comparison to the garden. Mark doesn't just tell us it's Mary Magdalene. He actually used, introduced her for the very first time up in chapter, 14 verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 40. That's the first time we ever heard of Mary Magdalene in the whole book of Mark. He doesn't just call her Mary Magdalene here. He calls her Mary Magdalene and he tells us that she had been overcome by seven demons. She is Mary who was once controlled by Satan. So the first human to taste the sting of sin and death, leading to being cast out of the garment, was a woman swayed by Satan, Eve. It seems so fitting, does it not? That the first human to witness the one who has conquered sin and death would be a woman whom Satan has been cast out of? Isn't that sweet? Verse 10, She went and she told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept, Follow. But when they heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, Follow, they would not believe it. How did the disciples respond? Pure disbelief. Verse 12, After these things, He appeared in form to two of them as they were walking into the country and they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. And we know that this is the account often called the account of the followers on the Emmaus Road. We're told about this in Luke chapter 24 in a lot more detail where Jesus showed Himself to the followers. It's a really interesting tale. Go read that this afternoon, Luke 24. He shows Himself quite clearly through the Old Testament to them. They come back and tell the disciples, and the disciples, even after hearing how He had been shown through the Old Testament, they respond how? They don't believe. Verse 14. Now we know by this time from John chapter 20 that they, the eleven had gathered in a locked room. Verse 14. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves and they were reclining at table and He rebuked them for unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. And now Jesus comes. 
And there he's standing in the midst of them. And what does he do? He rebukes them for their hardness of heart, for their disbelief. That we disbelieve the truth about God is very, very wicked. And Jesus calls them on it. He rebukes them. And then listen to this really strange transition. So you've got unbelief, 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 rebuke for unbelief. And then verse 15. Read with me. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken these things to them, was taken up in heaven. He sat at the right, right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Alright, let me offer a colloquial summary of verses 14 through 19. Jesus walks in. Just catch the irony. He walks in and very strongly rebukes those who had followed Him and known Him for years for failing to believe that He was resurrected from the dead. Then Jesus tells the same disciples to go tell the entire world that there is good news, but only if the rest of the world will believe in this Jesus they have never seen. While promising to accompany them with signs, Jesus will not go with them and He ascends into heaven. These same disciples, who were scared and full of unbelief, walk out ready and willing to give their lives to go tell others to believe in the One for whom they were just rebuked for not believing. Either this is a huge joke or something massive changed. How do you go from verse 15, sorry, verse 14 to verse 15? How does that make sense? It only happens if the disciples encountered something of cosmic proportions. That's the point of the text. The disciples experienced the resurrected Jesus. They locked eyes with the King of the cosmos and everything changed. Try to imagine the magnitude of their experience. They had spent the last few years of their life with this amazing teacher, and this is the biggest catch for me, and sinless human being. He had never wronged them. He had never treated them unfairly. He was never selfish. He was always gentle. He was patient and kind. I could sum that up a lot easier and just said he was everything opposite of a four-year-old. But anyway, <laughs> you can only imagine how much they loved him. And then he undergoes this incredible public embarrassment and shame followed by a horrific 
gruesome, torturous death. And then days later, he stands feet from them in a glorious body, fully alive. They look at him and instantly they go from confusion to perfect clarity. Recall Saul on the Damascus Road? You know, he heads out fully convinced that all the things he's heard about Jesus of Nazareth is utter heresy. And and he is going to give his life to rid the world of this toxic thing called Christianity. He sees the resurrected Jesus (laughs) and suddenly... He becomes the world's greatest missionary in history. One thing changed. He saw the resurrected Jesus. The same thing happened for those 11 apostles. They went in. They went from being 11 frightened souls huddled in a locked room to death-defying courageous witness of Jesus. They walked into that room, 11 confused men who had lost a friend, and they walked out of that room as the first fruits of the largest major religion in the history of the world. They walked in afraid that they may be harmed, and they walked out ready to die, and die they did. The fate of those 11 men, two crucified, two speared, two beaten to death, one beheaded, One hanged, one burned alive, one skinned alive, and one died alone on an island. Nobody denies that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by Rome. No historian denies that. No one denies, no historian denies that his followers abandoned him in the final hours. And no one denies that these same men started the spread of Christianity, the single greatest world religion ever. And so I ask you a simple historical question. How do you go from abandoned and scared deserters to death-defying zealots without the resurrection? An actual resurrected Jesus is the only thing that can explain going from that locked room to those martyrs' crowns. And I know, I know that liberal mainstream folks are happy to say that the resurrection is just a spirit of hope or, or a strong sense of peace, but honestly, it's historical nonsense. A Hallmark card experience doesn't change those men from a bunch of cowards to crusaders, but an actual resurrected King of Kings does. And that landed on me this week. This happened. Let me ask you this straightforward question. Do you believe, and just pull the churchy stuff off, I mean honestly, just as a historical question, do you believe that the resurrection occurred? Do you believe it really happened? If you don't, and it's fair if you don't, If you don't, you do have to explain why is there even something called Christianity? It makes no sense. How do you explain why these men would give their lives while offering the entire time the exact 
same consistent argument as to who Jesus is and what His death meant. If you believe it happened, then everything, literally everything, changes. If He is the risen King of the cosmos, there are massive ramifications for that. Jesus stood before His disciples. Now listen, this is something. It's one thing for me to stand before my family and say, now for this household, we're going to do this, right? It's something for a pastor to say, and this church is going to do this. Or a president to say, and this country will do this. Jesus stands before His disciples and He says, now you go into where? All the world. He's making a cosmic decree. I own this place. You go into all the world and you tell them that this, and He's pointing at Himself, this is good news. And if they believe, they'll be saved. And if they don't, they will be condemned. How is it that a bodily resurrected Jesus is good news? Well, it's good news if you believe that what He endured on the cross was more than mere physical torture. It was more than what could be observed by the mere human eye. See, the Bible says that every one of us have rejected God. And in our sin, in our disobedience, we are going to rightly be condemned for that. But when Jesus died on the cross, on that death, in those six hours, God put on Him all the sin, all of our sins. And He paid for it. So that when He is raised from the dead, He stands as our forever guarantee that the debt has been paid. That is really good news. Those who believe will be saved. But do you realize that's only the beginning of the good news? Like that's just the very first on the way in. Here's how you get into that good news. That's just the beginning. The resurrected Jesus represents what life will be like one day. One day we will live under the rule of Jesus Untainted by sin, untainted by sickness, untainted by suffering and death. His resurrection is nothing but the foretaste of that day. It is hope that when we are tired and we feel that we've missed out or somehow messed up, there's coming a day when we will taste whatever joy we think we might have missed in a way much stronger than we could have ever experienced it here. Now just stop and think about that. I feel that as I get older. Right? I'm not going to sit here and moan about my age, I promise. But I, I feel that. There's things that the body just doesn't feel as... I act like I had some stellar athletic career. Um, there's probably not much more that my body would have done then than it'll do now. I just like to think it would have, right? But do you realize when, when that day comes, you get a brand new body. 
And it's never going to age. <laughs> and you're going to experience life unending without sickness and without sin. You've never experienced a minute of that. And it's coming because He stands resurrected. It is hope for our brothers who are being beaten and killed because they bear the name of Jesus. It's hope for our sisters who have been horribly mistreated because they cannot and will not call any other name but the name of Jesus, Lord. Friends, the first believers, they reoriented their entire lives around the fact that Jesus had been raised. They became messengers of hope. We are called to be messengers of hope. We have to speak the Gospel. We have to tell people the Gospel. Here's my challenge. I'm just going to give you a very practical way. Will you, this week, with a friend or co-worker, start a conversation? Here, here you go. Here's, you can write it down verbatim if you want it. It's, it's going to start with a question. It's going to kind of scare you because who knows where it could go. Just ask this question. Just to start the conversation. Do you really think that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Just start there. I'm being dead serious. You don't? Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. I've got a few questions for how you understand a few things then. That's interesting to me. You do believe that. Well, now that's interesting. What do you think that's going to mean for you a hundred years from now that He's raised from the dead? How's that going to change things for you? Oh, but Tim, what if they ask me about you know, all that weird stuff in the Bible and homosexuality and they might just try to ask me about evolution. And Look, that's why you start with the resurrection. It's kind of like if you want to, uh, you got a date and you want to introduce them to your family, you take them to the weird uncle first. Like, let's just get this over with. If you survive the weird uncle and they're okay, you can keep going with the rest of the family, right? You got nothing to worry about. I don't mean to call the resurrection our weird uncle, but I mean, think about it. We are claiming that the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, was raised from the dead. If you're willing to swallow that, the rest of it's cake. You can go down with the rest of it. Big flood, big fish, we got that. Giants coming down, Nephilim, okay, weird, but hey, we've seen weirder, right? Start with the resurrection. Did it happen? Just ask the question. Did it happen? Yes, it happened. Now that's really interesting. Because I, I haven't really thought of you as one who worships Jesus. But if you believe it happened, you realize there's coming a day you will worship Him. So how's that going to look? Let's just talk about it. Right? Let me finish with this quote. Poor guy, we don't even know his name. But he's from the 5th century. I absolutely love this quote. Here's how he greeted his congregation on Easter. This is the day in which the Lord is made. Let us keep it with gladness and rejoicing. Because the sun is no longer darkened. Instead, everything else is bathed in light. Because the veil of the temple is no longer rent. Instead, the church is recognized. This is the day on which Adam was set free and Eve delivered. 
It is the day on which the cruel death was shuddered, the strength of hard stones destroyed, the bars of tombs were broken and set aside. It is the day on which the heavens were opened as the rising of Christ the Lord, and on which, for the good of the human race, the flourishing and fruitful tree of the resurrection sent forth branches all over the world. I love it. That's what the resurrection should do for us. It should set forth branches all over the world. And everybody should have to deal with the question, did it or did it not happen? Let's talk.